It's a great pleasure to have with us today, Paul Lewis, a great friend of the Muse concert program. In fact, Paul was the last person to play a live concert here at the University of Hong Kong. Hopefully we will resume and hopefully he will come back. So welcome, Paul. Lovely to see you again. You too. Thank you very much. How have you been during this crazy time? Well, I've been okay, thank you. Um, early on, I got ill in, in March. I don't know whether it was COVID because uh, you know we, we weren't really up to speed with testing at that time, but otherwise I've been fine. Um, and actually it's, it's been a great time of discovery, you know, with it, without the deadlines of concerts, of, of having to, to get repertoire ready, to be able to just explore a, a lot of different repertoire has been, has been a great pleasure uh, and exploring things that I, I might not have, you know, had I had my, my concert schedule this year. So what kinds of things have you been exploring that uh, have sort of led to new insights for you? Well, I, I, I got into a phase of French music. I learned the Ravel G major concerto, which I'd never learned before. I've been looking at some Debussy and, and also um, some old repertoire that I haven't played since the 90s, like Rachmaninoff concertos, which, to be honest, I never thought I'd play again. And then I got them out and thought, oh, this seems like fun, actually. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so, so looking through that and, and also looking through a lot of Mozart, I, I found that the the optimism in Mozart's music was was very important for me at, 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 a, at a point, um, given the, you know, the, the amount of despair and, and uncertainty that, that we're all faced with at the moment. Um, so I, I had a, a, at least a month, a month and a half of, of just sort of learning Mozart sonatas and some of the concertos that I hadn't learned before. And I found I found that very, um, very reassuring in a way. But I can't live without the Mozart concertos, actually. I, th I find them extremely uplifting. But what is it about Mozart for you that you find optimistic, as you say? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just something that's very forward-looking in, in, in the music. Um, of course, he, Mozart despairs as much as, as, as any other composer, but you don't, I'm trying to think of even a piece like the, the C minor piano concerto, it's it's what you just said. You feel uplifted uh, after after that. You don't go away with a sense of of despair, even even if there's a lot of that in the music. Um, there's there is something that there's a sort of unshakable optimism about his music. I feel, um, and and something like I said, you know, that we can use more of in these times. And there's a sense in which I think the music tends to. Well, just kind of play, right? There's a kind of playfulness there that is always trying, in one sense, to be very joyful, even if it's a kind of a minor key work. There's something that's happening with all this um, uh, fig figuration that is just, you know, so graceful and uh, just gives you, puts a smile on your face in a funny kind of way. I don't know what it is about Mozart that does that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But what about, because you've been, you know, you're well known for Schubert, very different uh, from... Uh, uh, from sort of the optimistic Mozart. I mean, I mean, do you find that Schubert also would speak to you at this time, or, it, or is that just a little bit too much to handle in this time of COVID nineteen? No, I, I felt it has spoken uh, very importantly in this time, but in a very different way, of course, to, to Mozart. Um, Schubert, you know, as we know, uh, when he got his, his diagnosis of, of syphilis in eighteen twenty three that had a huge impact on, on his music. I mean, prior to that, 
there was sense of you know of longing and nostalgia and melancholy but that all took uh, a much bleaker and despairing turn um and there's something you know i always think of the, the the main one of the main differences between beethoven and schubert is that beethoven always finds an answer beethoven always resolves somehow and schubert almost never does so what is it that that is consoling about Schubert's music. I've, I've wondered about that. And maybe it's it's the way that Schubert is able to put very clearly into music things, things that we feel that are often quite difficult to put into words. You know, he puts it in a way that, that's very direct and that we understand. And I, and I think to some extent, when we listen to Schubert's music, even if we do have this sort of sense of, of despair, we do feel that sense of despair in it. We feel that he's with us. You know, we, we feel that we're understood. He understands what we're going through, even if there aren't necessarily obvious answers to things. Well, that's, that's part of the human condition really, isn't it? You know, that, that's, that's what we are. We, we don't find answers to everything. Um, but, but to hear music that, that understands that, and reassures reassures us that it's with us. I think is is also very important in this time. I've, that's what I felt. Is there a particular piece, sonata, or a moment in Schubert that really encapsulates this a sense of him sort of going through tragic times with us kind of experience? Gosh, there, there are many. Yes, um, I always think of the the A minor sonata. Deutsch 784, which was written around the time um, of his diagnosis, early in 1823, which is one of the most distressed pieces of music I know. Um, uh, there's even some rather raw anger in, in that. Um, it, it sort of developed from there in a way. Uh, if you look at some of his later pieces, like the A major 959, I think of the the ending of that piece, that the end of the last movement is utterly heartbreaking. It's, it's as if he can't let go of that theme, that, that, that beautiful theme in the Rondo theme in the last movement. It's like a dear friend. And at the end where he just repeats the last bar of that, of that, the last the, the phrase of, of that theme. Um, it's like he, he knows that he won't see that friend again. Mm. And, and is desperate not to say goodbye, but knows he has to. But there's something about it that, that, that still is okay. You know, we, we survive, we, we go on, we, 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 there's a sense of acceptance about it. I think that in some, in some way encapsulates what Schubert is about. Even when there are no answers, we survive, you know, we, we, we go on, we, we still find a way. And let's say that, well, that, that's the position we find ourselves in at the moment in, in many different respects. Right, absolutely. I mean, that kind of, um, I, I guess it's a kind of bittersweet lyricism that you, that you get in Schubert where you know, it's, it's so beautiful, but at the same time, so heart-wrenching because you say, you know, it's like yes. just staying there. You can't you know, take your face away from this beautiful thing, but at the same time, you know that you're fading away, but you're the one that's losing that, but that beauty still remains somehow. But there's also something about Schubert where, in a way, it's much more violent uh, than Beethoven. I mean, I was uh, thinking about, say, the slow movements of that A major sonata, where it just goes into this 
extraordinary kind of, I don't know what, kind of hurricane sort of, sort of rips through the lyricism. I mean, that's not a, a kind of bittersweet Schubert. I mean, that is a truly angry, violent Schubert, right? Yeah, it, it's, it, he screams in agony in the middle of that movement in a way that Beethoven never does. I mean, Beethoven can, you know, bellow right from the, you know, right from the bowels, but he's not, he doesn't scream in anguish like, like that, like the, the way Schubert does. Interestingly, you know, when I, I, I just think of it now, um, the times that, that Schubert does provide a resolution to something, think of Die Schöne Müllerin, uh, which he also wrote in 1823, the, the year that he, you know, realized that he would die young. There's a resolution at the end of that, and it's death. Um, you know, the, the, the resolution is, is less consoling in a way. Schubert's resolution is less consoling than, than, than when he doesn't resolve. Um, but yes, Beethoven finds a different way. I mean, Beethoven often, I feel, powers his way to an answer. You know, he just just rises above and, and imposes his will on, on whatever struggles or questions that, that there may be. I mean, you feel when you play, I don't know, maybe late Beethoven that, uh, that the music always resolves, or do you feel that sometimes really, he also has this sense where he's not, you know, he doesn't really know. I mean, he's just trying to end, but then there are really questions that he cannot himself answer. I feel sometimes in late Beethoven, he just rises above the questions. If it's, it's, it's a res resolution in a different sense, you think of the end of Opus 111. It's, right. you know, it's nothing is important anymore. You know, whatever questions there may have been, they're, they're just not important. There's, there's it's, it's just transcends everything at that point. And I always think of that piece as, you know, the first movement is the struggle. And it gets yeah. this amazing coda where he, you know, from C minor to C major, the whole thing relaxes. And almost the last movement is almost like a giant cadence was giant sort of C major resonance to where he's got to, you know, in, in the first movement. And then sort of ends with this extraordinary kind of, I guess it's a kind of, well, people often think it's a kind of farewell because it has this very nostalgic feel to it. But as you say, it has this kind of transcendence about it. Somehow the issues are no longer issues for Beethoven. You know, it's like he doesn't need to worry about that anymore. In a way, it's not about death. I mean, Schubert is always about death yeah. somehow, I know, because of yes. course he's dying of an infectious disease like COVID-19. But Beethoven is not really thinking about death somehow. It's always something way beyond that. It's exactly what you say at the end of 111. It's as if it sort of passes into a more spiritual realm somehow. The issues are not issues, like you say. And it, it, there is a sense of, of something valedictory about it, but at the same time, there's also, there's equally a sense of opening up into, in, into something different, which um, just makes everything else irrelevant somehow. So the, the, the struggles of the first movement are very much in the past. And, you know, that, that's the answer he finds later on in his life. One of the um, pieces that I, I don't think I can live without is the slow movement of the Hammerklavier, which is in a way... Um, kind of the opposite of Schubert, where, you know, Schubert gets to this kind of bittersweet ending and Beethoven starts with this kind of death-like theme. And then it, it takes you somewhere that, again, as you say, sort of transports you into another place. I mean, what's your view of that particular movement? And then what's your view of the fugue that comes afterwards? I'm very curious about your, <laughs> <laughs> the way you think about well, the Hanukkah. Well, when I've played it, my, my view of the fugue is one of enormous stress uh, at that point, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't think of a more stressful piece of music that I've, I've ever played. It, it's it's incredibly difficult to hammer clavier, but of course the, the slow movement is is one of the great adagios of of all time in all music, really. Um, for me, the, 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 there's that, and there's there's the slow movement. There's the last movement of Mahler three, which sort of comes somewhere somewhere near it. Um, I, I can't remember who who said it, but there's a quote from, from someone that they, the, the slow movement of the Hammerklavier is a mausoleum of suffering, and and it's it's absolutely spot on. There, there is just there's so much suffering um, in that movement, but but in the end, of course, it's uh, even there. There's a there's a kind of I'm not sure whether to call it a resolution, but there's this this very introspectively soothing F-sharp major that, that he finds in the end. But there's, there's a tension in there as well. There's an expectation of something. And the way he slips down a semitone from F-sharp to, to, to F-natural for the, the introduction of the fugue, and then writes this completely uh, insane and intractable fugue. I mean, it's just impenetrable in a way. It's like the, the, the ultimate answer, but in a physical way. It's his physicality in that fugue that, that really is powering through uh, and, and you know, casting all questions aside. But really, the, the extraordinary thing about that, that piece for all the, the difficulties of the fugue is, is, of course, that slow movement, really. When you get to the end of the fugue, I'm always very curious about this. I mean, it, it... It doesn't, I mean, all the big chords are not even on the downbeat. They're kind of written on, I can't remember, some sort of bizarre beat in the bar. I mean, it seems to me that despite all the pyrotechnics there, I mean, that, that, as you say, that sort of, you know, just crashing through everything with this fugue, you know, almost totally in your face. Um, it's not quite a resolution in, this, in, the, in, the, in the normal Beethoven sense that you might get at the end of the Fifth Symphony where it's like, you know, victory is assured kind of thing, right? There's something much more, I don't know, violent, brittle, you know, questioning about that ending, don't you think? There's something, I, I think for, for all the, it's, you know, the fugue is what, 12 minutes, that, that movement is, it's a very substantial movement, but there's almost something abrupt about about that ending um we we don't feel that we're at the end of the journey in the same way that we might do it in a middle period work for instance like the fifth symphony that you mentioned or the the, the waldstein sonata or, or, or something like that there's there's something there's something different about it um there's, there's something more angular about the way he resolves i mean even even the last couple of lines where he writes, he mentioned that the chords are not on the downbeats. He writes, I think, for, for most of that. I think, in fact, the last two lines are actually in 4-4, in four, four, right? It's still in 3-4, in, in, written down. But he writes, he totally disregards the meter and writes totally, you know, just, just over that. And there's, there's something so contrary about it. <laughs> well, if you that, said it's insane that, fugue. <laughs> <laughs> That's very typical of Beethoven all the way through his life. It's so different from, from Schubert. I mean, Schubert, in a way, um, uh, is a kind of desolate landscape, right? When you, when you, when you think of Schubert, I mean, even um, when he is 
uh, I don't know, moving very, very fast, say those last movements in those uh, late sonatas, you know, it, it's a kind of, um, I don't know, I, I can't quite call it a death dance, but there is something relentless about it. But it's a kind of, in a kind of bucolic scene, it's always something like a landscape or a pastoral, but somehow it's gone horribly wrong, <laughs> you know, even though they're celebrating. Yeah. With Beethoven, is. Well, I, I, it's well, it's very seldom a pastoral. So it's more interior in a way, and, ba and Schubert tends to make the interior sort of outwards into that kind of uh, landscape where all kinds of terrible weather and terrible changes of uh, terrain can happen. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying makes me think immediately of the last movement, the C minor Schubert Sonata, where it, it is a kind of dance of death, um, and that there's. There's something very, very much of pursuit about it. You know, this, this, this is death pursuing you, um, from and there's no escape from this this fate. And yet, the middle section that he starts in in B major again, one of his semitonal shifts. Um, that you know, you think of the color, the contrasting color between C minor, the tragedy of C minor, and the the, the openness of of B major in a way. There's there's something almost sunny about it. But the way Schubert presents it is, is so full of nostalgia. And to me, when Schubert uses uh, a major key in the context of a minor key in that way, it's the minor that represents the reality. Right. Um, and, and, and the major that represents the, the nostalgia, the memory, the, the things you can't have anymore. And that's what makes it so heart-wrenching. Um, and that that's it's exactly it's a great example of that in the last movement of the C minor. I was also thinking about humor because in a way, you know, when you, I remember you playing the Dear Billy Variations uh, at Hong Kong U and, you know, at moment, I mean, there were moments when people laughed out loud because, you know, they're very funny moments uh, that, you know, the Beethoven is having a laugh. Uh, I was thinking, you know, about, about Schubert and whether you ever find Schubert funny at all or is it really just... <laughs> kind of like not funny. I find Schubert good humoured, um, especially in his uh, let's say his pre-syphilis days. Right. Um, it's it's still it's still there afterwards. You know, this this sense of gemütlich, you know, this this good good humour. Um, but I never find him funny. Right. Um, you know, Beethoven can make you laugh. Haydn can make you laugh. Mozart also sometimes can, can make you laugh. I sometimes feel Mozart's laughing at us, actually. This is sort of the, the other way around. <laughs> but uh, Schubert never. I mean, it, it's, it's a little more like Brahms in that sense. I don't think Schubert wants to surprise us in a way that, that makes us laugh. He's not mischievous. Um, he's good humored. You know, he smiles and sometimes he smiles genuinely. It's, it's not just a sad smile. Um, but I, I don't feel that, that humour is, is really a big part of Schubert's music at all. At least I haven't found it yet. I'll keep looking. <laughs> Maybe there's a moment somewhere. But anyway, it's lovely to talk about all this great music. I, I want to talk about you a little bit. Um, and I was wondering what the new normal is like for you. You know, uh, you know you're going back to giving concerts. Uh, has it been difficult? Has it been something that it has brought great joy and relief to you or has it been a real challenge? I, I think this this time, this last six months has really clarified things in a way and, and reinforced what's important. And, and for me actually, uh, reinforced what makes 
live performance unique and, and what's important about that. Because I've done a couple of live streams. You know, the Wigmore had this series in June of, of live streams from an empty hall, which I think all of us that took part in that were, were delighted to take part and terrified to take part. There, there was something, uh, it's, it's just that the whole strangeness of, of the situation. Um, but that series to me was as much of a statement as anything else. It was to say, look, here's the empty wig more hall, but we're still here, we're, we're carrying on. Um, I think we've moved on a little bit from then. And I've this month played a few um, concerts to, to smaller audiences. Um, what seems to be happening a lot is that you play a slightly shorter recycle program without interval and play it twice or even three times, you know, to, to, a, to a small group of people so that uh, you, you end up sort of playing to more or less what you, the audience you would have played to. Um, and that for me, it's, it's really been a reinforcement of, of what makes it special. You know, you need those people there. You need the energy of an audience. Music is essentially a social thing. You know, it's a spirit, it's an experience that we, we have together. You know, when you, when you, you play in an empty hall, and you, it's, it's a live stream, it's supposed to be a concert, but it's not a concert at all. You, you can't recreate that energy of a silence with a couple of hundred people in the hall, you know, everybody listening intently and concentrating. There's, there's no way you can manufacture that. And I don't think any amount of technology uh, will, will, will help us there. You know, this, this is something that I think everything we do now has to point back to you know, getting people back into halls as safely as possible and, of course, at, at the right time. But that's where music lives, I, I feel. That's, that's where the experience lives. It's when we all experience it together. Right. And I, I guess it's, the live stream would be different from some kind of a recording in a studio. I mean, because obviously you make a lot of recordings uh, and there's, there's no audience. I mean, there, there'd be a sound engineer, but uh, there's no real audience there. So is it different from that? Yeah, because when you make a recording, um, you know, it's, it's a different mentality, really. You're, you're, you're aiming at something different. With a live performance, you're aiming at an experience, uh, you know, sort of conveying something in the moment. And that's what a concert is. It's a snapshot of, of something that happens there. And it lives in people's memories. A recording lives on a CD or on a hard drive or, you know, or, or something else. And I think we inevitably, of course, we, we listen differently to recordings um, than we do to, to live concerts. So when you, when you make a recording, you're looking to achieve a certain amount of detail that maybe, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily achieve in, in the concert hall. Um, you know, if, if you play a few wrong notes in, in the concert hall, people don't necessarily hear that because they're listening to music. You hear it more easily on recordings. That's why, you know, you make sure there are no, no wrong notes in recordings. And, and this is why the idea of live streaming from an empty hall, to me, do, doesn't make a, a lot of sense. You know, the, the, there's, it's sort of, there's a friction between those two things there. Um, yeah, but, but for me, getting back into the hall and, and playing to people, even if it's 10 people, is, is such a pleasure. You know, it, it's just a real joy. So now that you have this contrast between the kind of empty concert hall and live streaming and then just playing to humans again, um, live humans, um, I mean, do you feel that your performances actually um, are changed 
by the audience that, that is there. I mean, you, you're saying that without the audience, something doesn't happen. There's something that doesn't work for you, right? That means that yeah. every time you play, it'll be different or, you know, you're reacting to audience, I don't know, concentration or whatever. Uh, yeah. And that you, you're, you're, you know, you are changing your interpretation all the time or your, or your level of risk, let's put it that way. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, and I've, I've long felt that, that there are things, you know, you can practice and study till you're blue in the face um, and, and you know, sort of airbrush things and make sure you, you know exactly what you're doing and turn every stone. But there are things that you would never learn, that you can never discover until you're in front of people, until you have that energy and, and that kind of, of focus. And I remember there was a point years ago that I realized that and it was in a performance of, I think it was my first performance of the Tempest Sonata. Um, so I was playing it for the first time. And with those recitative passages at the start, it was, it was about the, the timing of those, the, the color and, and the silences, more specifically the silences between them. I think, you know, something, I, I just realized something in the performance and it wasn't that I kind of knew exactly how to do it, but I thought this is a lesson you know, this is where I learn how, how to do this. And you have to treat each performance in a sense, like a lesson. You know, you go away from each performance with it fresh in your mind, what worked, what, what didn't quite, what you discovered, what, what was a surprise, you know, in, in both good ways and bad ways. And, you know, that, that's how, I think that's how you evolve and how you develop as, as an artist and as a musician. Um, and it's another reason why, yeah, we, we need live performance. It's interesting actually just you know, listen to you, listening to you uh, talk about this, how in a way, you know, the, the audience makes the silence because actually the, the silence of the concert hall is a kind of given kind of thing. But a, a made silence by people really creates that kind of atmosphere in which music can become live, as it were, you know, classical music anyway can become live in that kind of uh, very dynamic sense, right? There's the audience silence. It's something that really galvanizes you to, um, to play in a way to that silence or to their concentrated silence. Yeah, it's a very yes. thick kind of silence. Yeah, it's uh, the audience are as much participants as the performer or performers. You know, it, it, really, is, it really is the case. And this, it's those situations where silence becomes music. And in, in some cases, in, in the case of Schubert, quite often, you know, the silence is at least as important as the sound. But we have to give that silence a meaning um, and, a, and a purpose. And it can only have that meaning and purpose with the audience that makes that silence. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's true. Actually, all, all the music you play so, so brilliantly, in fact, requires that silence. I mean, Beethoven, Schubert, Mozart, I mean, they all need that for it to really work, as you say. Yeah. But yeah. I wanted to also talk a little bit about your future projects, because, you know, you've had this time of, you know, learning and exploring new things. Obviously, most of the Beethoven concerts have been cancelled or postponed for this, you know, celebratory 250th anniversary year. Um, but Schubert is coming up soon. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are you thinking of um, presenting to the world, you know, in the uh, coming few? I guess you had to plan a few years in advance, you know, what's what's up your sleeve, as it were? Well, in the next couple of seasons, there's there's sort of mixed bag of repertoire, really. Um, I, I I would quite like to throw in some of the things that I've reworked and, and discovered: Ravel, G major, 
if Rachmaninoff again, why not? You know, I haven't played it since I was in my 20s. Um, and for 22-23, so a couple of years down the line, I, I was, I've been planning um, a series of Schubert sonatas. So all the completed sonatas plus the Reliqui Deutsche 840, uh, which is a kind of complete, incomplete sonata, like, like the unfinished symphony in a way. Um, so that's, that's what I've been really looking forward to coming back to. I did a similar series. Well, I did the last six years of his piano music about 10 years ago. And then 10 years before that, I did a similar series that I'm, as I'm planning in, in a couple of years with the, the completed sonatas. Um, I'm just, I, I'm so looking forward. I can't wait for that. You know, a, a year of Schubert for me is is the ultimate indulgence you know i, I when, when, when i've done it before it's like spending spending a lot of time with one of your closest friends but of course you don't always get on you know you realize you you, you discover the <laughs> the things the, the, the areas where there are friction as well um but it's yeah for, for me that that's what i look forward to almost more than anything musically speaking. And now that you're doing Schubert, as it were, th that cycle again, I mean, I guess it m you must have changed uh, your understanding of it and your performance of it, uh, particularly after everything that the world has been through these, these last uh, few months. I mean, is it now, is it a, dif a different Schubert uh, that, you're, that you're sort of getting ready for? I, I think so. I, I, inevitably, it will be different. It's hard to say exactly how. I suspect it might be bleaker in, in a way. Um, you know, I, I remember it was actually through working at the song cycles uh, that I, I've played with, with Mark Padmore. Um, certain songs in Winterreiser and Die Schöne Mulder, and especially though there are songs like Wegweiser and um, Die Böse Farbe in, in Müllerin, where you have this repeated the same note repeated all the way through the song um there's something I, I when i think of pieces like the the first impromptu of deutsch 899 where you get this repeated um i always thought of that in in my early days and as an accompaniment and then i realized realized it's not an accompaniment at all it's fate you know it's it's inescapable fate it's something that's always there that, that we can't get away from um, and that was a point at which I think my, my Schubert playing changed um, so there, there are things that there are kind of events that, that do make um, a noticeable difference to to the way I play but I think in general you know you just you live your life you you kind of what happens in your life inevitably feeds into the to the way you you see this music um, and this time, yeah, this time of, of uncertainty and, and, and despair, um, of course, is, is part of that. What about, uh, I, 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 uh, the comment you made earlier about Rachmaninoff, like, you know, you went back to playing Rachmaninoff and then you thought, you know, you would never revisit these, you know, concertos again. Um, what, what, I mean, what was the reason for that? Uh, because actually... My view of, actually, particularly the second piano concerto, is that it's one of the most perfect <laughs> piano concertos out there. Um, but it is interesting that I don't associate you with Rachmaninoff. I'm just, just curious about you know, your experience of Rachmaninoff and then not playing Rachmaninoff and then thinking to yourself, well, maybe you know, I should re return to this music. 
I, I don't think I've ever had anything against Rachmaninoff. Um, you know, in my teens and 20s, I played a huge amount. Yeah, I played the second, third and the, the Rhapsody. Um, and actually, when I was at school, I played an awful lot of Russian music in general, Prokofiev and, and Scriabin. And yeah, n- nobody would think that these days, of course, because then I, I sort of focused pretty much um, exclusively for a time in my 20s on, on Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Haydn. And, and that's the direction my, my repertoire took. And I'd say it, it really is the core of my repertoire. Um, I think it always will be, but uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I never wanted to close any doors. And I think it's, it's rather just the focus on a completely different area of repertoire that perhaps you know, meant that I, I didn't pay attention to, to other things so much. But I'm, I'm more minded at the moment to, to go back to those things. Um, and of course, you know, thinking of, I, I mentioned I, I learned the Ravel concerto for the first time. Well, I'm 48, so, you know, it takes, it takes longer to hammer the notes into to your brain than it does when you're 16. But I, Rachmaninoff II was the first concerto I ever played with an orchestra when I was 16. And you get it out now, having not looked at it for over 20 years. And it's somehow still there. You know, it, it's 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 all it's it's inside somewhere and your fingers sort of know where to go. And and there's something wonderful about that. Again, it's like coming back to an old friend. And I thought, you know, I, I do want to do this again. I think it'd be wonderful <laughs> to hear you do that. I would I would I'll be there when it happens. <laughs> Paul Lewis to write Man off too. I'll I'll turn up for that one. And the Ravel. I mean, I'd love to hear you uh, do the Ravel because in a way, I mean it's so different in, in the sense that it kind of, I don't know how to describe Ravel, but it's kind of um, I, I, it's difficult because I want to say the word kind of artificial and surfacey, but it seems to be so derogatory sort of terms, but I don't mean it in a bad way. But there's something about Ravel that is just so pristine, you know, the, 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 the textures, the sounds, every note, and there's a kind of joy there as well, right? A little bit like Mozart in yeah. a way. Uh, well, exactly. There. It's it's almost like uh, classical music with a 20th century French colour, Ravel. It's it's wonderful. And and that, that really appeals to me. So I, I hope to play that at some point. <laughs> I can imagine that coming out beautifully from your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really great to, to talk to you, Paul. And glad to... Oh, you too. <laughs> glad to hear that concerts are happening again. And glad to hear that, you know, the live concerts are happening and that you can really get back into the full swing of things because I'm sure many people miss you. We certainly miss you at Hong Kong U and we would love you to come back and get you to come and do that Schubert cycle or more. Just, we should do the Rachmaninoff and the, and the Ravel. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. But thank you so much for I, your time. I miss you, you all too and, and I hope to see you as soon as possible. It'd be such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.